Our Heavenly Father, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the mouth and the conversation, so that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given, all for your glory. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 21, page 946 in your pew Bibles. And we will begin reading in verse 8. So beginning Romans 10, beginning in verse 8, here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom... They have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I asked, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's been three months now since the last time we were in the book of Romans. So I think it's worth beginning this morning with a brief recap of where we are in the letter. Since the beginning of chapter 9, Paul has been dealing with the difficult problem that was facing the early church since the gospel has been going out to all the nations. The gospel had been embraced by many Gentiles, but rejected by the majority of God's chosen and beloved old covenant people, Israel. And so the questions arise, has God's word failed? Has his promise to his people become null and void? Paul's definitive answer to these questions is absolutely not. And in answering these questions, he has been very careful to show that his response is based 
not only on the teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles, but it is primarily based on the Old Testament, as he quotes from Moses, from the Psalms, and from the prophets. In chapter 9, he focuses on God's sovereignty in salvation, how God works to elect and to call those whom he freely and sovereignly determines he will save. Now in chapter 9, he focuses on the means God uses to apply that salvation to us by granting us the gift of faith through the preaching of the word of God. Last time, now three months back, we saw a contrast between the righteousness of man, a righteousness of our own works, which can never save us, versus the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness received through faith. This is the only way we can be saved. And so we saw the need to confess and believe in Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Today we focus on the instrument, what we call the means of grace, which God uses to grant someone that faith, namely the preaching of the word of God. As Paul presents the crucial importance of the preaching of God's word this morning, I hope you will see why preaching is so central to our worship here at Church of the Covenant. We'll cover our passage under three main points this morning. First, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, hear the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, Israel's unbelief despite hearing and understanding. So first, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And Paul is primarily concerned in this passage about the unbelief of his fellow Jews. His overall message is that salvation is available to all who put their faith in Christ. While Israel had been God's chosen people under the old covenant with the coming of Christ, the old covenant has come to an end. The gospel is now going out to all nations, and there is now no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction in terms of sin. As Paul has made clear, all have sinned and are under the wrath of God. All are equally in need of salvation, which can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no distinction in Lord. Christ is Lord. He is Lord of all. I made the point last time that this term Lord is the term used all throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to God himself. And Paul is deliberately equating Jesus Christ with God the Father. He is also showing here that Christ is a gracious Lord, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, all who call on him in repentance and faith. Back in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he rebuked the proud man. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But here he is calling you to meditate on the riches of his kindness and grace, that it might lead you to repentance and faith, that you might call on the Lord for salvation. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us. Continuing in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The link to the previous verse is the same theme word, call upon, along with the universality, everyone. He's again quoting the prophet Joel as he quoted earlier in verse 11. And Paul is repeating it again here in verse 13. To put it quite bluntly, he's saying this again, hopefully to penetrate even the hardest heart. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. What wonderful good news. This is the gospel. Praise the Lord. Now, having declared this good news, Paul tackles the question that naturally follows. How does one hear the good news that he might believe? That's our second main point this morning. Hear the Lord Jesus Christ. For faith comes through hearing. Verses 14 to 15a form a series of rhetorical questions which are linked together in a chain. Let me read the verses and then we'll examine each element of the chain. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You'll notice how each rhetorical question in the chain begins with the question, how? And each question anticipates a negative answer, a a no. The idea is that a person cannot call on Christ if they have not believed, and so on. So calling on Christ requires believing, and believing requires hearing, and hearing requires preaching, and preaching requires sending. Or to reverse the order... Preachers must be sent that they might preach so that others might hear, so they might believe, so they might call on the name of Christ, so that in the end they might be saved all to the glory of God. You can see that this whole chain springs out of verse 13, the the need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Implicit. Implied in this chain is that hearing the preaching of God's word produces faith, which Paul will bring out explicitly in verse 17. But before we get there, he exclaims in the end of verse 15, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is actually an abbreviated citation from Isaiah 52.7, but the full quotation is this. We read it earlier. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here Paul is speaking of the beauty of evangelism. The beauty of preaching the good news for the eternal salvation of all who will receive it. And it's a profound image. But if you really think about it, it's a bit counterintuitive in some ways. Think about a time long ago before planes, trains, and automobiles. Think of a messenger running to bring good news from town to town. 
running over hard terrain, over hills, over mountains. He's running in sandals. His feet have been covered in the dust, mud, and grime of the road, perhaps torn by thorns, rubbed raw with blisters. Feet are tough with calluses. From an outward perspective, these feet don't necessarily look beautiful. They certainly aren't beautiful in the sense that he just emerged from the salon with a fresh fresh pedicure. Why then are his feet called beautiful? Because these are the feet that have carried the good news that brings salvation to all who will receive it. I'm a bit puzzled as to how to update this imagery To a world today with all its modern conveniences, not only cars and jets, but also the ability to reach a global audience with a handheld smartphone. But whatever the means of conveyance, the fact still remains that there is beauty in evangelism, beauty in preaching the gospel, however and wherever it is done. Whether the gospel is proclaimed in a suit, in a climate-controlled auditorium, or proclaimed wearing tribal garb under a tent in Africa, The gospel must go forth to the ends of the earth, and it is a beautiful thing. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And after this great blessing is exclaimed at the end of verse 15, we almost stumble as we come to the problem of unbelief in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Paul continues to quote from Isaiah now from the very next chapter, the famous chapter 53, which prophetically describes Jesus as the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. For the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here Paul highlights highlights the problem of disobedience and unbelief. The problem is not with the message nor with the messengers, but with the hearers who refuse to receive the message with faith and obedience. By speaking of disobedience, Paul makes clear that the gospel is not only a message, it is also a command, a command to be obeyed. The gospel commands all who hear it to repent of their sins and believe in Christ. And therefore, to refuse to do so is disobedience. Not all have obeyed the gospel. And then just after the darkness of verse 16, then we get the light of verse 17. We see here there are two possible reactions to the preaching of the gospel. 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So after the jarring unbelief of verse 16, Paul returns to the positive fruit that the preaching of the gospel produces. Faith comes through the preaching and the hearing of the word of Christ. Preaching may seem a rather simple, a rather unspectacular thing in a modern high-tech world today. And yet, it is the means that God himself has chosen to reach the world with this life-changing, soul-saving message. 
Preaching the gospel is the primary means that God has chosen for advancing Christ's kingdom until the return of the king. And though it may seem ordinary on the surface, it does not mean it is not powerful. It is as powerful as God has made it to be. As powerful as God's word itself is. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 And for that reason, unbelieving rulers tremble when they hear God's word proclaimed. Far too often, their response is simply to outlaw the preaching of God's word. Thankfully, we are blessed to live in a time and a place where there is liberty to proclaim the gospel. The trends I see in our own country, our culture, I certainly don't take it for granted that will be the case for the rest of my life, much less for the coming generations. Those are concerns for prayer. Ultimately, they are in the Lord's hands. The contrast between verses 16 and 17 they do present a question. What makes the difference between the positive and the negative responses to the preaching of God's word? We'll take up that question in the next section of our sermon. But first, there are two other questions provoked by these verses I want to address. The first is a question of the translation of a portion of verse 14. The ESV translation reads... And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, this translation implies the preacher is preaching about Christ, so they might put their faith in Christ. And I believe what Paul is writing here is even stronger than that. You'll see there's a footnote in your ESV Bible because the more natural translation of the Greek grammar would be to translate this even more simply. I would translate it, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? That is to say, how are they to believe in Christ if they have never heard Christ himself? What Paul is implying is that when God's word is truly preached, Christ himself is is speaking through the preacher. That is why preaching is powerful. Because you are not hearing man's word, but God's word proclaimed to you. That is why faith comes through hearing, because it is the means through which Christ himself speaks to his people. This is the traditional Reformed doctrine of the preaching of God's word. As Heinrich Bullinger put it in the Second Helvetic Confession, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. Now, of course, I must be very careful to distinguish between what I am and what I am not saying here. I'm not saying that anything spoken from a pulpit is automatically Christ speaking. But I am saying that when the word of God is 
faithfully proclaimed by a faithful minister of the word, Christ is speaking through his minister. He's not giving new revelation, but simply proclaiming what has already been laid down in the scriptures. And of course, the minister must proclaim the scriptures and only the scriptures. Any departure from the word of God is not the word of God. But God's people must hear and heed their Savior's voice. So when the word is truly preached, Christ himself speaks through his servant. For the one who preaches, this is a deeply humbling doctrine and one that causes ministers to tremble. Prince of Preachers Charles Spurgeon was said to repeat the words, I believe in the Holy Spirit on every step as he ascended up to the pulpit each Lord's day. This doctrine causes me to say with Paul, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3, who is sufficient for these things? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. This brings us to a second question. Who is sending these preachers? Paul never directly answers this question in the text, but we can find the answers elsewhere in the New Testament. It is first and foremost... Christ himself, who has made sure that his church will have preachers. At the founding of the New Testament church, he personally commissioned the apostles. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 speaks of his giving the gifts of the leaders for his church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, we could go into much more detail of exactly how Christ works providentially to equip, to raise up new preachers, but the simple answer is that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, continues to send out preachers even today. And with these two questions answered, we conclude the second main point. Hear the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, for faith comes through hearing. This brings us to our third main point, Israel's unbelief despite hearing and understanding. As I said, ever since the beginning of chapter 9, Paul has been struggling with this problem of Israel's unbelief. And now this unbelief is seen through this lens of the preaching of the gospel. And so these questions arise. Is the problem with Israel simply that they have not heard? Or perhaps that they have heard but they have not understood? What's the problem. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul's response, he's quoting here from Psalm 19.4. You probably know Psalm 19 and how it begins. I'll quote it up to the verse which Paul himself cites. The heavens declare the glory of God And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In its original context, this psalm psalm speaks of God's universal general revelation through nature. Now, Paul is taking this principle of God's universal speech, originally speaking of nature, but now he is applying it to the gospel, which has now gone out to all the nations. And he's saying it's also gone out to Israel as well. Similarly, Paul writes in Colossians 1.23, the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, he's saying here, certainly Israel has heard as well. As you know from the book of Acts, the gospel was first proclaimed in Jerusalem. And even on the day of Pentecost, it was proclaimed to Jews who were visiting Jerusalem from all over the world. And that was long before the gospel went out to the Gentiles. And so Paul is saying, certainly the Jews have heard. They have heard. And so follows the next question. Verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And Paul doesn't give the answer explicitly. But the implied answer is clearly, of course they understood. They have heard, they have also understood. What is it that they understood but have rejected? It is Christ and the gospel, but it is not only that. It is also the fact that Christ has come not only to save Israel, but also to welcome in the Gentiles as well. It is that Christ is Lord of all, that he makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That is clear from the context and the quotations that follow, and it is perhaps that that is most offensive to the Jews. And so following this, Paul gives three Old Testament quotations in a series, one from Moses in Deuteronomy and two from Isaiah. And we'll take these one at a time. Verse 19b First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. This verse comes from the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 21, which Moses composed near the end of his life. In the original context, Moses first refers to Israel provoking the Lord to anger when they worship the golden calf. And then the Lord responds with what's quoted here. And Paul is saying this prophecy is now being fulfilled almost 1,500 years later. God is provoking Israel to jealousy as he is now calling the Gentiles who were not a people. And he is making them his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, as Paul will go on to explain further in chapter 11, this is actually part of Paul's mission strategy to reach his fellow Israelites, Romans eleven thirteen through 14. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. The strategy is that as they see the Gentiles receiving so rich and gracious a salvation, they would have a beneficial jealousy that would actually lead some of them to come to Christ. And continuing verse 20, 
Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. This quotation from Isaiah 65.1 reminds us of what Paul wrote in Romans 9.30. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. The Gentiles have not received this righteousness because they sought God. Because the good shepherd has gone out seeking his lost sheep. He had sent out his preachers to proclaim the gospel to all nations, to the very ends of the earth. And finally, verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the very next verse after the last one quoted, Isaiah 65, 2. It depicts depicts God's mercy and patience with his people Israel, a stubborn, rebellious, disobedient, and contrary people. The Lord truly is slow to anger and abundant in mercy. But slow to anger does not mean he never grows angry. He had given Israel a very long leash that they had finally come to the end of it. Yes, a remnant of Israel would be saved by grace, as Paul had said in chapter 9, and he will go on to explain further in chapter 11. But only a remnant. So we return to the question Paul asked at the beginning of chapter 9. Has the word of God failed? Most certainly not. All his promises to Israel are yes And amen in Jesus Christ, who is himself the one true and perfectly faithful Israelite. But as Paul also made clear in chapter 9, 6, and 7, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Chapter 9 also provides the answer to the question of what makes the difference between those who respond positively and those who respond negatively to the preaching of God's word. Paul established this foundation in chapter 9. God is sovereign in salvation. He has freely chosen those whom he will save from before the foundation of the world. And he will call them to himself at a time of his choosing, in a manner of his choosing. And the ordinary means he has chosen to use for calling men and women to salvation is the preaching of his word. And so, when the gospel is preached, if it is for you the day of salvation, God will use that preaching to grant you faith by the power of his Holy Spirit. And you will believe, and you will obey the gospel, and you will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. Now, of course, no one knows beforehand if you or anyone else is chosen by God for salvation. So from your perspective, it is a simple choice. It is a matter of obedience. Will you or will you not believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? That choice is before in each and every one of you this morning. Will you repent and believe the gospel? 
Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Jesus Christ is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Call on him in faith today. Although Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, we know that his heart was broken over the unbelief of the Jews until the very end of his life. In every city he visited, he preached the gospel first in the synagogue and only then went to the Gentiles. And so in the final chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we read this account of his ministry in Rome. Upon his arrival, he invited all the Jews in the city to him to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. So we read Acts 28, 23, and 24. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Note his manner of teaching, expounding the scriptures. And note the response. The preaching of the gospel produced good fruit and bad, belief and unbelief, according to God's sovereign free election. Then note how Paul responds using the same mission strategy. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And so, Paul goes on to boldly preach the gospel for the next two years in Rome, even as he is in chains. I don't know what his feet literally looked like at the time, but I do know this is true. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Shall we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for this great promise that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We thank you for the preaching of this word and that you have taken it upon yourself to send preachers into all the world so that men might hear this good news and hearing might believe and call upon that name. Lord, if you are working among us even this day, we pray that there might be faith in calling upon that name and salvation in our midst. We even thank you that there are those who are coming forward this morning to profess that faith publicly 
and be received into membership in your church. We pray, Lord, that you would make us not dull of hearing, not hard of heart, but soft of hearing, soft of heart, eager to receive this word, to believe it and to obey it. All to your glory, who we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.